Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. The COVID pandemic has killed more than 735,000 Americans and some 4.9 million worldwide. World markets continue to roar on expectations of strong earnings as leading firms either report or prepare to report results. Despite inflation and supply chain worries, Boeing Starliner spacecraft continues to experience challenges. uh, And of course, leasing companies are angry with Airbus. Joining us as they do every week to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocketron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch and Richard Abalafia of the Teal Group Consultancy joining us today from the Chatham, New Jersey uh, Bureau. You two are together uh, at Ron's place, so that's uh, absolutely terrific. And Sash Tusa of the independent London research firm Agency Partners. Uh, and sadly, we are not able to do this program all together yet. Guys, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, it's great to be here, Vago. It's wonderful to be in the yeah. same place as Ron and uh, speaking to you from a stately Epstein Manor. <laughs> you fit me too. It's lovely to be here. Thanks, Vago. Yes, and I should I should point out uh, for for everybody that that Sasha's place is no less stately uh, and and elegant uh, than than the uh, Epstein crib. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy, and Rafael USA sponsored our coverage uh, of the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting in Washington D.C. Run, uh, start us off. Uh, as you do each week, uh, what was uh, driving inve- investors in the aerospace and defense space? Yeah, so if you if you look at um, just the broader market, um, a couple things were going on. Um, you know, fuel prices continue to rise for you know, a, a number of reasons, supply chain issues, among others. Um, so if you look at generic Brent crude, it's uh, almost 84 bucks uh, a barrel. Uh, and then the same thing with uh, you know, interest rates that we've been tracking. Uh, if you look at the 10 year, it kind of is in, it's having a steady rise um, upward still. Um, so we're you know, up to you know, 1.6% and kind of with that same trajectory. So, um, so you know, one of the worries that we've been you know, talking about and hearing about from investors is you know, inflation, supply chain stuff, so on and so forth. Um, along that front, we had you know, two companies report this week, um, Hexel, which is under my coverage, uh, Honeywell, which is not. Uh, but uh, they both talked about supply chain issues uh, and inflation. Um, and in fact, in, in Honeywell's report, they said that their defense business was down uh, year on year 17% related to supply chain issues having to do with castings and forgings, um, so on and so forth. If you look at the, you know, the broader market, the S&P on the week was up uh, about 1.6%. 1, 1. Um, Boeing is kind of a bellwether of, uh, you know, the big commercial aerospace companies was down about 2%. XL was down uh, almost 6%. Uh, and then the defense names um, you know, outperformed. Uh, Northrop was up uh, just under 3%. Lockheed Martin about 2.5%. And then Raytheon, which sort of splits the difference between two of them, but between defense and aero, um, was up about 1%. Uh, and uh, I think that kind of rounds out the week. Uh, and we're uh, going to get into uh, earnings a little bit deeper uh, in a moment. Sash, what, what was what was on your mind, and what was driving European investors this week? Um, I, it was a it was a very very mixed uh, week in uh, Europe this week. Uh, clearly, you know we're we're just in the run up and at the very start of the European 
companies' earning seasons. But actually, I think that the stocks were much more driven by Different or differentiated concerns about supply chain, about whether, uh, about uh, you know the impacts of inflation, and and then also just about you know there's very varying news coming out about the impact of coronavirus. You know, on the one hand, Australia is uh, finally opening up, um, having had probably the strictest lockdown probably bar New Zealand of any country in the world. Uh, and that all goes very, very well for long-range travel. It sounds like Qantas are even going to um, uh, start dusting down and uh, and uh, getting their A380s out of storage. But on the other hand, um, in the coronavirus in the UK is uh, going up to, not record, but certainly recent uh, highs again. And that's making people just more uh, more cautious of, uh, about flying. So that's had quite a big effect on the civil service. And if you look at Airbus, I mean, Airbus is down you know, seven, eight percent over the last couple of weeks, not really on any specific news flow, but just on a concern that the 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 recovery and the degree to which that drops through to them as an OEM might not be as, as smooth as people were expecting, you know, way back in August. Uh, Richard, what's what's on your mind? What were some of the interesting things uh, that you noticed over the course of the week that are worth bringing to our audience's attention? Well, uh, you know, I, I think three things. One, of course, is more talk of the uh, Chinese uh fractional uh, orbital bombing system, as it may or may not be, but it does involve the test of some kind of hypersonic vehicle. Um, there was some very interesting commentary from Southwest uh, about the return of their labor force and their assumptions that they would come back very promptly because you know people love to be unfurloughed, but apparently that didn't happen for a variety of reasons. And I think it, it highlights a risk moving forward that we, unlike in past recoveries, are not going to be leading the way. We're going to be a lagging indicator in the recovery. And I think that has a lot to say. And then finally, uh, you know, just more on, on, on Max, more numbers came out. And it's pretty obvious that they're finishing the year with something like 340, 350. Uh, Max is still in inventory, but still planning on moving to a 31 per month rate uh, early next year, raising the question of, does the market really support something like 700 deliveries next year. Uh, so I think those are the three things that I found interesting about this week. I'm, I'm uh, fascinated to get Ron uh, and Sasha's uh, deliveries uh, take uh, as, as well, right? Because uh, Sash, uh, a little bit of the frustration by lessors uh, against, against Airbus is the, the rate increase that, the, that they're planning. Uh, Ron and, and Sash want to get your take on, on rate and, and whether or not it's sustainable. You know, they, they can't deliver that many 737s last year. I mean, ne- next year, it's just not going to happen. Um, a, the airlines can't do it. B, maybe you get a little bump when you get the approval from China, which presumably will happen, you know, sometime if it doesn't happen at the end of this year, sometime next year. Um, but it's just it's, it's such a humongous volume. The airlines can only absorb as many as they can absorb. I think another interesting piece of information that was discussed this week, and I think we've discussed this in the past, is lo and behold, a lot of those airplanes that were parked that were gonna get scrapped, they're coming back, <laughs> right? So it's, you know, you, not only do you have um, the new deliveries, but you have, you know, aircraft that were that were parked that are coming back that many people thought weren't gonna come back. Um, and that's got implications for both the OEM market uh, and the aftermarket. When you look at the Boeing situation, um, one of the questions that has been floating about is, you know, why aren't they delivering more airplanes? Right? You know, what's what's the constraint? Um, and one of them clearly is, you know, again, airlines can only take airplanes so fast. 
Um, but if you look at how Airbus has been delivering, it kind of counters that a little bit. But a big difference with the 737 MAX today and before the MAX crisis is every 737 MAX that comes off that line gets certificated by the FAA, not Boeing. So if you think about the ultimate arbiter of pace on that program, it's the FAA. Uh, now, I can't tell you for a fact that um, that is the largest contributing reason to why they're lagging in deliveries um, from where people thought they would be. But Boeing not having the, the ability to sort of push airplanes through and, and throw their certificate on the door on delivery and everything having to get expected and inspected by the FAA, for sure, um, has to be slowing the process down. And, um, you know, uh, Mr. Dixon this week, um, you know, in, in congressional testimony came out and said, hey, you know what, you know, the, the relationship between Boeing and the FAA, you know, this, you know, this isn't your, I don't know, you know how you want to frame it, your, your dad's FAA, things are, things are different. Um, we're seeing that uh, with what's going on in South Carolina. Uh, and I think it's manifesting itself in the delivery rates on uh, 737s as well, at least partially. Any, any uh, update on the 787? Uh, production challenge issue or, or nothing new to report this week? Yeah, no, nothing, nothing new to, to report this week. But you know, what, you, what you hear from some of the customers we talk to, just you know, mounting frustration. Um, one of the lessors that we regularly speak to was expecting to get seven to eight airplanes this year. Um, and they're hoping now to just get one, right? So that, that just kind of you know, piles on the pile of uh, things that you know, Boeing has to work through. Um, Sash, uh, your sense from an, an Airbus uh, deliveries perspective, right? I mean, Financial Times uh, wrote about the uh, frustration uh, with uh, Airbus, which Richard contends is not something that's necessarily new, but bring us up to speed on, on the storyline. Yeah, look, I, I think Richard's absolutely right. This isn't new, but it's, I mean, it, as with so many things in this industry, it's tremendously entertaining. There is always or there are always grains of sort of underlying truth in the stories. Um, and, you know, for me, I'm just getting popcorn in to watch this. So, the, you know, the story in the FT is that the chief executives of Avalon and Aircap wrote a letter direct to Guillaume Forry, Airbus's chief executive, uh, saying, you know, the market, by which really they mean us, the leasing companies, can't absorb all the aircraft that Airbus is uh ramping up to produce remember you know airbus troughed out at 40 aircraft a month they're back up to about 45 their targets to get up to 50 60 and ultimately 75 a month so uh, you know airbus is saying by mid-decade we airbus will be producing more a320s than we have ever ever produced before uh every month um and you can see why they want to do it uh they want to crush boeing they think that they have the category killer with the A321, almost certainly true. Um, and, and here's where I think there is a huge amount of disagreement. They think they think the market can absorb that. Now, you know, with fuel prices having tripled at least in the last uh, six, nine months or so, it's almost certainly the case that airlines need new fuel efficient uh, aircraft, but they've got a, you know, genuinely thousands of those on order already. The question is, do they need more? And, does Airbus need to go up 75 a month to, to produce them? Probably not. But right. you know, the leasing companies are talking their book. Let's be honest. Every time Airbus produces new aircraft, uh, you know, for additional aircraft, the leasing companies have got to finance them. Well, they can do that. But they've then got to go out and find uh, customers for them. 
And the risk is that the more aircraft Airbus produces, the the greater the risk of uh, you know leasing rates coming under pressure. So it's in their interest to have a very very controlled market. It's in Airbus's interests to produce as many aircraft as possible because these are two companies that or two or, uh, businesses at totally different end, uh, ends of the of the uh, food chain in that respect. Richard, your take on where we are, you know, having started this, your take on, on where we are and where we're going. Well, Sash is right about all of that, of course. And it's been a, fancy, a fascinating dynamic for uh, many years that the lessors have become very big customers uh, of Airbus and Boeing, but effectively they're competitors too. You know, I mean, they're both competing to supply demand to the end user, the airlines, of course. And uh, as Sash says, of course, there's uh, some, you know, the whole uh, pricing mechanism depends upon supply demand, which means if they start delivering more uh, in, in tandem, both the lessors and the manufacturers, then, uh, well, rates come down and asset values drop too, inevitably. This is just a pure supply and demand conversation. It's just that the big conversation is that these guys are both customers and competitors. Let me just uh, ask a, a follow-up. Um, and, and maybe, uh, uh, Richard, I'll, I'll start with you, uh, but everybody else can weigh in on this as well. Uh, Dr. Uh, Kevin Michaels of the Aerodynamics uh, Advisory uh, Consultancy um, has made the point that if an airplane sits around for too long, it it's actually starts to become too difficult to bring it back into service, right? I mean, not all of these airplanes are properly mothballed and put in Davis Monston and all of the other stuff. I mean, they've, they've been parked. And after a while, when you're parked, it's, it's not good. Are there going to be problems uh, as well as financial opportunities with bringing these airplanes back into service? Well, you know, Kevin's got a point, of course. Um, it's, but it's just a question of expense and time. You know, the best of my knowledge, our own Ron here was the one who pioneered the uh, the deep the term depickling, <laughs> if memory serves, and uh, that's what you're doing. You know, I mean, it's just a question of what fluids have to be drained, what has to be wrapped in plastic, what has to be removed. So, you know, the longer you're going to store it for, the more those things have to be done and undone. So, uh, you know, I don't think there's much risk of rats getting in and uh, eating up the foam between the seats and such. But on the other hand, it does increase the uh, the cost. And, uh, you know, and of course, the uh, the flexibility you have in bringing back capacity. Uh, all of that, you know, in, in the backdrop, of course, of people wanting to increase production rates and uh, put jets into service that had already been built on top of the ones that were uh, that were you know in storage it's it's worth noting though that the percent of the fleet that is in storage has come down to 22% which of course is a a low since uh, since since March of uh, 2020 when the pandemic began that's certainly very welcome news you know it peaked out at about 65% so you know yes it is it is important to watch but the problem is uh, so much less severe than it was uh, you know last year and, and Vago, you know, I, I, I might add, right, when you look at, I think the heuristic is if an aircraft is parked for more than two years, the probability of it coming back is um, is lower, much lower, significantly lower. But that's under kind of normal historical circumstances. And, you know, the last two years have been anything but but normal, right? So, I mean, you're seeing that not just in our industry, across industries, you know, all the supply chain challenges, you know, people going back to the office, work for it, blah, blah, blah. Um, so, you know, you're going through what this industry went through for the last two years, and then looking at a specific historical precedent, 
um, I'm not saying you, you, you shouldn't um, try to learn from it, but it, I, it's different, right? So I, I just wouldn't be surprised to see, um, as I've said for a while, uh, many of those airplanes come back. It, it reminds me of if you go back after um, September 11th, 2001, and if you remember that after that, was it 2003 when the 757 got shut down, the 757 platform was going to be no more. Um, and then you just kind of forward time uh, and the 757 ended up being a very desired platform. Um, in some sense, I think this is similar to that, but just in a much more compressed timescale. If I could just quickly uh, add to that, you know, there's always a percentage of permafrost stuff that, you know, it just stay around. And the reason for that very often is that stuff gets parked, but not written off because the airlines are waiting for a return to profits so they could write off something against. Uh, so, you know, things might be there for two, three years, uh, but it's never coming back. It's just waiting for a write-off as soon as they make money again. And Smash. if I just add one, I've just, just one other point. I mean, I think, you know, run through the thumb is, you know, that, that absolutely rings true to me. Um, I, I'm sort of quite interested though, because actually the vast majority of 737 maxes have been on the ground for more than two years. So, Unless Boeing has been spending a ton of money keeping those aircraft uh, very, very, um, you know, sort of fresh and in good condition, the cost of bringing those out of, uh, and, and, you know, just the risks of bringing those uh, out of mothballs uh, and back into service again, is going to be, you know, significantly higher than, say, somebody who parked a, um, you know, an A320neo uh, back last March. You know, the, the 737 MAX will have been on the ground for nearly twice as long. I want to uh, shift gears and and get to earnings. Uh, Ron, um, Honeywell and Hexel, both are interesting barometers for the industry, right? They're broad suppliers for both uh, defense and aerospace uh, primes, and they span multiple domains. Um, what's the street? Talk to us a little bit about their performance and what the street is expecting from uh, the bigs when they start reporting next week uh, and beyond. Yeah, so I, I think, you know, when you look at Hexel, all... Um, you know, I don't want to say all eyes were on it, but many people were watching it just for their commentary around. If you look at their their inputs, one of the big inputs into carbon fiber production is acrylonitrile, which is you know tied to oil prices. Uh, and you know they they hedge themselves properly there, and um, but they have other input costs too. And and in and in the quarter, actually their their numbers were were fine. Um, you know it was actually a, a, a quarter that I think beat expectations on um, the margin front. Revenues were, uh, I think, in line with what broadly folks were looking for. But management commentary around, hey, we're going to be vigilant about what's going to happen uh, with regard to supply chains and inflation. I think that gave people a little bit of uh, a little bit of caution. Um, but broadly, if you looked at the quarter, it was like, yeah, not so, you know, you know, not that worrisome. And then Honeywell's quarter uh, was much more worrisome in that. Uh, where they highlighted risks, particularly in the defense business, where people thought, hmm, you know, I mean, if, if nothing else, defense is just pretty steady. Um, and, and they highlighted risks around castings and forgings. And, and I think this has been brought up before. And, uh, and um, uh, I'll bring, you know, Dr. Kevin Michaels back up again. And he, he's highlighted in the past, and I think rightfully so, that when you look at things like um, isothermal forging, investment casting, they were uh, big bottlenecks before COVID, right? I mean, if, when, you, when you think about aerospace supply chains and you look at the special metals providers and then the very special way you, you process metals for aerospace, 
that was that was a bottleneck and that bottleneck never really went away and when you look at the companies in the space i think precision cast parts um, um reduced their workforce by i, I think almost 40 percent. i don't want to get that wrong but let's say call it approximately 40 percent you know hexel mentioned on their quarterly call they reduced their workforce by a third so when you get back into a situation where you have to start ramping back up in the current environment where you're getting your workforce back in the first place is very difficult um, let alone rehiring people. I mean, it's going to be, I, I, I think that spells, hey, you know what, that the bottleneck that was there pre-COVID is going to be there post-COVID and probably much worse than it was before. So uh, I, I think that's you know, the biggest takeaway. And I think when you look at earnings this week, I think everybody's going to be looking at, so we, we have most of the big companies reporting this week, but Raytheon Technologies and what they have to say, uh, you know, European investors are very interested in, you know, what's going on um, at, at Safran. And then again, when you look at, you know, of course, the CFM, GE, there's a lot of focus is going to be on supply chains and inflation and kind of less so on defense. But let's talk briefly about a labor rate. Uh, Sasha, I'm going to come to you in just a second. But where do we think is labor or labor costs becoming an issue? We heard from Ronan Horowitz of Elbit Systems of America during our AUSA coverage um, about labor inflation. And of course, part, you know, and, and material costs, right? I mean, you're, you're mentioning oil prices and obviously oil prices are, uh, energy prices overall are, are edging up. Is that going to be something that's going to be a, a, a theme here? Uh, you know, if I could just uh, chime in for a second, you know, and this is also a commentary on uh, what Ron was saying on, on Hexel before, you know, what's different with this cycle is that defense is extremely strong and didn't soften at all and is getting even stronger. And of course, a lot of the exotic stuff and, you know, frankly, a lot of the engineering and technical workforce goes there too. And it's worse than that. All of that is cost plus, you know, I mean, you get your cost reimbursed plus a healthy profit margin. So compared to the commercial side, which of course has been under cost pressure and de facto deflationary for uh, several decades now. So if you're a supplier like Hexel, where are you going to put you know, your available capacity? It's going to go to the defense side. That's the way it works. And so if there are bottlenecks, they're going to emerge in commercial. And whether it's labor or whatever else, castings and forgings, I, I think it's, it's inevitable because that dynamic between the, the cost plus defense contracting environment and the commercial one is going to get more profound than ever. And, and Sash, one. Yeah, go ahead. So on, on your labor point, um, I think there's there are a couple of things you have to bear in mind. Yeah, yeah, yes, right. I, I think there's a view that you know the, the labor challenges are you know just in the services industry at the low end, and that's just woefully untrue. Um, if you look across industries, um, you pick your pick your industry. Um, you know, in our industry, we've had trouble maintain you know, you know re retaining people. You, know, you look in the trucking industry, you, you just you know, pilots, you, you name it. Um, it's it's no different. It's no different in aerospace. So that's that's one factor. So labor rates will be going up, um, kind of across industries, and you know that's that's a that's permanent, right? You don't you ever give that back. Um, and then and then two, and I think this is something that gets overlooked. That's going to have to get answered um, is what happens on December eighth. 
just last week, there was a report out um, in from the press in Wichita that only 54% of Spirit Aerosystems is actually vaccinated. So, so if that's the case, if only 54% of, of Spirit Aerosystems is vaccinated and they're a supplier to Boeing, which is demanding everybody to be vaccinated, and also to the U.S. government, which is demanding that everybody be vaccinated by December 8th, what, what happens? Um, you have a similar issue at some of the shipyards, right? I mean, that's, that's no secret. So um, there's, I think, a lot of labor questions and challenges ahead um, for, for this industry, but other industries too. But be it that a big chunk of this industry does contract to the government and there's a line on the sand on December 8th, that kind of even makes it more complicated. Um, well, right. I mean, there are a lot of people who would also say that wages have been, uh, you know, um, uh, unduly depressed for a very long period of time. And this is a natural adjustment. And, you know, ultimately, if you want good people, you're going to have to pay for them, even if it means uh, in impacting the bottom line, right? I mean, the bottom line grew fabulously because people were being underpaid across virtually uh, or across many sectors um, uh, over over a very long uh, period of time. Sash, let me uh, bring you into this. Um, Saab uh, reported all eyes are on uh, Airbus, Antalas, on Safran, and other big European names that are going to be uh, reporting. Uh, what do we see out of Saab, and what are what are the expectations about what everybody else is going to report? And are these themes of right? I mean, I imagine this the same inflationary pressures facing American companies or facing European ones. Yes, they are. Uh, although I think European companies are. Well, we'll see in the next couple of weeks, but they're not yet talking about inflation as a risk. What they are worried about, certainly when we've we've talked to you know a number of European co- uh, companies, has been supply chain problem, and um, you know specifically the risk that the smallest, most insignificant supplier in the in the entire chain, for some reason lets lets you down. And the ripple effect all the way up the, the OEM supply chain, whether it's in defense or, or civil, but probably more likely in civil because that's where the, the rate, the ramps are happening at the moment. You get let down by the weakest link uh, or a, a number of weak links. And that's what puts some of these very uh, aggressive uh, ramps in, uh, in jeopardy at the moment. I mean, what I would say is that, you know, there's, there's two separate risks. There's a volume risk, which is you don't get the volume that, the bulls on the stocks are hoping for because the supply chain just gums up much quicker than than people would like. Risk number one. Risk number two is the inflation risk, uh, and that is a that's a risk to margins and and hence to profitability. The two are not yet fully coupled. My guess would be that the supply chain risks, particularly in Europe, are going to occur sooner because companies have taken a, a ton of capacity out, as, uh, as, as Ron, Ron was mentioning, and that capacity does not go back, back quickly. And there's a, you know, to bring this back to Saab, uh, I mean, Saab is this sort of little microcosm of European defence and aerospace. It's predominantly a, a defence company. Everyone knows it because of the grip and fighter, but actually... It makes the best anti-armor weapons probably in the world. It has an incredible capability in radar, particularly in airborne early warning systems. Um, and it also makes uh, you know, submarines and warships. And then it's got a civil air structures business as well. Um, and you know, this sort of defense and aerospace conglomerate is more prevalent in Europe than in the US just. And what was interesting about the results last week, uh, I would say they were pretty un- unins- you know, underwhelming, frankly. Um, but the order intake was very, very strong indeed. And that was all defense. That was radar and command systems for 
German frigates. That's an interesting one. Swedish company supplying the uh, the German Navy with key uh, equipments for um, an entire class of frigates there. And a big upgrade and increase in scope for the Swedish A-26 submarine program. So, you know, the, the books of bill was nearly two times. The backlog is back well over 100 billion Swedish crowns. That That's all good. Revenues, actually pretty, you know, really, there wasn't a great deal of revenue growth, but margins are okay. They're not changing their, their, their full year guidance at this stage. It, in that respect, financially, it looks dull. Our takeaways from this, number one, Saab is a you know, big aerostructure supplier to both Boeing and Airbus. They haven't seen a cent increase in offtake from either company, either OEM so far. So here's Boeing uh, or saying we're going to go to rate 31 on the max. Here's Airbus saying we're going to go to, four, or we are at, 45 A320s a month on 320. It's 50 next year. It's 60 the year after. It's 75 pretty soon thereafter. None of that has trickled down to one of their major aerostructures suppliers. And so my guess is that Airbus at least is funding pretty much all of the initial rate rise out of stock I wonder when they are going to start calling their subcontractors and asking for uh, more supplies. And I wonder what the replies are going to be, the response is going to be when they do that. You know, are, are the suppliers going to say, look, you took your time about it, but we've had to lay a, a whole load more people off. We cannot give you that that ramp that you wanted. Um, it's going to be one of the really interesting conversations that we'll only hear about indirectly, probably over this winter. Very quickly then, look at, you know, so that that really, I think, is the interesting story for Airbus. Uh, next week. Um, Airbus has, you know, they've got very, very conservative. Actually, they've got guide, financial guidance for this year that lacks credibility now because they did so strongly in the first half of the year. I suspect they'll bring their guidance up a bit for this year. It's really the longer term targets that, that are now the interesting uh, bit, precisely because of the, um, uh, the, the twin issues of supply chain problems on the one hand and can the leasing companies and airlines, frankly, absorb all these aircraft on the other hand? As we are uh, running low on time, it's important to get to the defense part of the uh, conversation. Richard, uh, start us off, obviously, rising concerns about China's hypersonic capabilities. Financial Times wrote a story about how uh, apparently um, U.S. Uh, leaders were surprised about Chinese capabilities demonstrated over the summer, um, you know, being regarded as the as the country's fractional orbital bombardment system or FOBs. The, the Soviet Union had something like this during uh, the Cold War. Um, I, I don't know why they're, sh they're surprised that the Chinese are as good as they appear to be. I mean, that's only a surprise to those in Washington still convinced of America's sort of timeless superiority, even if you don't invest in it, right? Um, th there is a little bit of a debate about what this means and doesn't. Todd Harrison of the Center for Strategic and International Studies on Friday explained that this might not be what it seems, um, although this is a test. We might not know how it fits into the whole. From your standpoint, wh what, is, what does this mean ultimately, and what does it potentially drive? And I want to get, uh, Ron, your sense on this as, as somebody who's studied you know, aerodynamics um, and uh, Sash, your take on what how Europeans are regarding these developments. Go ahead, Richard. You know, it was a, a fascinating moment. I think it means uh, either, you know, or maybe both quite a lot less and quite a lot more than, uh, than you know, just the, the appearance, you know, quite a lot more. Yeah, it's an impressive achievement. And they clearly are gaining in terms of their aerospace technology base. There's no denying that. Now, in terms of practical applications, you know, as uh, Ron has pointed out, uh, all ICBMs are uh, 
hyper yeah uh, hypersonic at uh, when they re-enter so uh, nothing nothing new here and the idea of this fractional orbital bombardment system has been around and i think even tested for <laughs> half a century or something and then there's the practical applications you know the financial times made the point that it was uh, within 24 miles of the target and these things are never known for accuracy which means all right what's the practical application if it's conventional, a decapitation strike, well, hypersonics also feature extremely small warheads. So assuming you're always going to be miles away and you have a small warhead, uh, you just accomplished exactly nothing. If it's a nuke, you know, okay, I studied this in grad school, but I didn't need to. I mean, everyone knows it. You drop a nuke on the US or another nuclear power and the world goes boom because everybody has an incredibly robust second strike capability. So I don't understand the use for this at all, but as a signal that they have arrived in terms of aerospace technology development, yes, that means quite a lot. Um, I, 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 think, I think part of this, right, is both sides are also racing for a lot of conventional deterrent capability, but also ways to get around U.S. missile defenses, right? I mean, the Russians are doing the same thing, whether it's with the Canyon uh, or the Poseidon torpedo or, or any one of a number of nuclear uh, glide body vehicles, right? I mean, they're trying to put a little bit of uh, greater uncertainty uh, in, into the entire thing. R Ron, go ahead, because you're the you're the man engineer and all things aerodynamics. Well, I mean, if you will, I mean, the holy grail in, in, all, of, in all of this is uh, ultimately controllability, right? So the idea that you can have a, a, a hypersonic reentry vehicle that then can change course and fly around and um, that ultimately would be kind of untrackable I mean, that's what you want. And it doesn't seem like anybody's there on that. I can't speak to the U.S. because obviously it's classified and I just don't know. Um, but that's that that's what you want. Um, you know, as you know, as, 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 as sort of a circular reference, as Richard said that I said, um, you know, all all missiles, all ICBMs come in hypersonically, basically everything going through space does. Um, but, you know, the, the trick what makes, you know, quote unquote, hypersonics trickier is that they don't follow a, um, a ballistic path or a path that is you know, somehow traceable or predictable, um, that they can be on one path and change course and fly around. Um, so if you think kind of like hypersonic cruise missile con you know, conceptually, um, nobody, nobody that I know of um, is there yet, at least in an unclassified world. So that's, that, that's kind of where we are. And then, then ultimately you, you have to expect your um, competitors and adversaries to be continually trying to upgrade their game. Um, and, you know, like some management teams say, you know, competition is good um, and that will force us to upgrade our game. Uh, and, you know, at least what you hear from the companies is that there is more money being spent in space and military space, government space. And there's more money being spent on hypersonics. So um, this just probably bolsters that case, right? I mean, it's hard to expect that, you know, given, you know, the, the press on all this, that uh, the spending on hypersonics would be reduced, if not uh, increased, as we go into the next budget cycle and future budget cycles. This could be potentially a very needle, right? I mean, these hypersonic weapons, I mean, the challenge with them is that they're very expensive. That's the big debate. Do you do standoff? Do you do stand in? The farther out you are, the bigger the warhead, the higher the cost, the more the complexity. Um, and there is this debate, right? I mean, do you fire um, a, a, a missile that's the cost of 
you know, an F-16 fighter or, or more or half the cost of an F-35 on a one-way, depending on the, on the target, that may be worthwhile. Whereas if you park a lot of these in orbit, might be a more efficient way of doing things and, and doing pre precision strike. I mean, ultimately, do you know anybody who's made a good financial case model for this? Like, okay, so if this is the Sputnik moment, then it drives investment, right? I don't know how many people would have concluded that, you know, before Sputnik that we would be spending the amount of money we did on a space program, right? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I, I haven't seen an uh, investment case either way. But realize, I mean, there's a lot of activity going on in both government and commercial space. And if these are parked in orbit, uh, there'll be a case to come up with um, systems to depark things in orbit, right? Ultimately. So is this, uh, is this continuing your depickling, right? This deparking? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if they're floating around out there, you kind of know where they are. I mean, we're, we right, we right. collectively are tracking space junk, which is probably in many ways more difficult to track um, due to its size and so on and so forth. Um, you know, we'll know when these things get where they end up being parked and both commercial activities going on and government sponsored activities. And if you think about not to kind of get a little bit out there, pardon the pun, the, the cislunar economy, one of the business cases that's uh, being discussed pretty frequently now is the refueling and movement of satellites. Uh, think about it as, you know, tow truck and servicing in space. Right. Um, if you can tow truck around one of our satellites and service one of our satellites, if there's a competitor satellite where we don't want it, we can move it. Um, so it's, yeah, you know, I mean, so there's, there's, there's ways to, you know, de-risk this situation. Now I'm not saying that they're mature in there today, but they're not, just on paper anymore. I mean, you, right. you have some work going on in both the government sector and the commercial sector on technologies that could be very helpful to, to mitigate that risk. Um, Sash, uh, let's, uh, as we wrap this up, give us kind of a European perspective, how all of this is being observed. And I should also uh, point out that Europe has extraordinary capability and technology in all of these fields, right? Even if it's not exercising them, uh, whether they're labs in the UK or in France, or even I dare say the Swedes, which have an extraordinary capability and explored a lot of these issues uh, over, over the decades. You know, what's, how is this news being greeted? And do you think that it moves any needles from a European perspective? Because obviously Russian hypersonic missiles are closer to Europe than, um, than they are to the United States, for example. Yeah, look, I think that's, that's the issue, isn't it? I think Europe is a a technology bound behind the US in this. And part of that is that Europe perceives itself to have this 5,000 mile security blanket uh, that, you know, China feels a hell of a long way away for Europe. Um, the arguably very politically selfish view in Europe is that uh, China is the US's problem primarily. And therefore, uh, politically, you know, it, it certainly raised eyebrows, the test this week, but there's been a feeling of, well, this, this is a US problem to deal with. The European problem, which Europe is not dealing with well enough at the moment, is, as you say, the, the Russian threat, whether it is a hypersonic threat or, or a, uh, a straightforward um, tactical ballistic missile threat or an air breathing threat. And Europe is still, I would say the recapitalization of European air defences, whether uh, land-based or uh, ship-based, is proceeding behind most other European recapitalizations. I mean, the, you know, 
the 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 absolute pointy end of European defence recapitalisation is land land forces at the moment, but particularly heavy land systems. Um, air defence, in its broadest sense, is, is feels very poorly funded by comparison. You know, basically, European countries count themselves lucky if they've got a couple of batteries of Patriots, and most of the the Patriots that have been bought by European countries are uh, now thirty year old systems and need a lot of upgrading. So I don't see this moving the needle in Europe yet. It tends to be Russian moves that move the needle because the, you know, the security blanket is just a whole lot thinner uh, between Europe and, and, and Russia. Even the UK is only 1,500 miles away from, uh, from Russia. And if you're anywhere in Central Europe, you know, you're in uh, three-digit miles only. And that really does focus uh, attention in the way that China just doesn't. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. It was an honor and pleasure having you on. As always, uh, have a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, thanks very much, Vago. Thanks, Vago. Always great. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.